This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's finally Friday. Friday. <laughs> we have made it. Gastroenterology coming in the rear view, uh, almost in the rear view mirror. Um, we have a few more questions. And yeah, you ready, Daphna? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to start then with question 33. Daphna, the mechanism by which the body decreases bilirubin levels includes all of the following, except conjugation by glucuronyl ugh. <laughs> <clears throat> conjugation by glucuronyl transferase in the liver i never can pronounce this it's not like it, by the way people it's not like it's the first time i'm reading about this enzyme okay That's just right. just just like <laughs> let me i have some dignity here <laughs> so yes um so okay let me start over the mechanism by which the body decreases bilirubin levels include all of the following except conjugation by glucuronyl transferase in the liver, B, deconjugation by heme oxygenase, C, excretion of urobilin and stercobilin in stool, and D, isomerization of bilirubin in the skin. Yeah, so I knew I, I really struggle with enzymes. It, it, it eats me up why we have to know so many enzymes, but I know that A, C, and D are correct, so I picked B. <laughs> okay. Um, I know B, I know hemoxygenase is in there, but I know that A, C, and D are correct. So. Fine. And it's, and it's a bit tricky. Um, mm-hmm. I was just writing this. So, it's, so okay. So B is correct. Uh, it is not accurate to say that um, it, the, 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 the deconjugation by hemoxygenase decreases bilirubin levels. Now, where is this tricky? Is because we know that a bulk of the bilirubin that's in a, a baby's system comes from the breakdown of, of red blood cells, right? About yeah. 75% of, uh, of the bilirubin is, is coming from RBC breakdown. Now, there's no bilirubin inside the red blood cells, right? The bilirubin has to sort of be, quote unquote, is a byproduct of the breakdown of hemoglobin. And so hemoglobin uh, breaks down into globin and heme, and the heme group then becomes biliverdin because of hemoxygenase. So this is where it gets, it was a bit tricky because hemoxygenase is part of that cascade mm-hmm. of in the, in the pathway of bilirubin, but it's actually one of the culprit when it comes to increasing the rates of bil- the, the levels of bilirubin in the blood. Because if you didn't have hemoxygenase, then hem- the heme component of hemoglobin would not be able to become biliverdin. So um, this is why it's incorrect. So hemoxygenase converts heme to biliverdin, which is then converted to bilirubin by biliverdin reductase. Um, there's many different mechanisms by which we can remove bilirubin from circulation. Um, initially, unconjugated bilirubin is taken up by the liver and conjugated. Uh, and I'm not going to say the name of the enzyme again because I don't <laughs> want to stumble. The conjugated bilirubin is then is water soluble and is excreted in bile. 95% um, is then reabsorbed in the terminal ileum and returned to the liver in a process called enterohepatic circulation. 
that uh, which is not recirculated is then converted by uh, the bacteria in the colon to urobilin or stercobilin and excreted in the stool. So uh, we'll talk more about bilirubin once we get to the to the heme section. But I thought this was a great question because you read it and you're like, I know heme oxygenase is in there, it but it's something. it's uh, it's actually having the opposite effect of what they're trying to test you on. Yeah, I think the other place you can get um, mixed up is that uh, urobilin. You're like um, that is goes to the urine, but it 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 also is excreted in the stool. Okay. So. Okay, 34. Elevated direct hyperbilirubinemia may be associated with all of the following conditions except A, biliary atresia, B, Gilbert syndrome, C, hepatitis, D, portal vein thrombosis, or E, sepsis. Um, okay, so I think the key here is to really pay attention, right? Elevated direct hyperbilirubinemia. So not indirect or not right. really unconjugated. They want to know direct conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. So um, let's see all of the followings except atresia, We spoke about that and, and we know that this causes um, increased direct um, bilirubin levels. Hepatitis will cause direct hyperbilirubinemia, portal vein thrombosis as well, sepsis as well. Gilbert syndrome is usually discussed in the context of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And Gilbert syndrome, if you remember, <clears throat> it's usually discussed in conjunction with Kregel-Najjar. And these are the syndromes where there's this inability to perform the bilirubin conjugation. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. I'm, I'm sure you're going to talk about what each one is, but mm -hmm. yeah, so Gilbert is not correct. It's not, uh, if you have Gilbert syndrome, you'll have indirect hyperbilirubinemia. That's right. So, I mean, that, that's exactly right. We talked about biliary atresia, um, hepatitis, portal vein thrombosis, and sepsis can all present with um, direct or conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Gilbert syndrome, um, again, uh, presents with unconjugated unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia uh, is mild and actually pretty common genetic uh, condition affects somewhere between um, three to 7% of Americans. So it's caused by an impairment in the conjugation process of bilirubin um, because of an autosomal recessive mutation in the UGT1A1 gene. Uh, you got away so, with the abbreviation there. <laughs> Should have done that myself. And um, that's why it has causes this kind of intermittent increases in indirect bilirubin. The other kind of related syndrome I'll talk about um, is rotor syndrome because it's also related to indirect hyperbilirubinemia. It's another autosomal recessive disorder um, caused by mutations actually in two genes, the SLCO1B1 and the SLCO1B3 genes. So it's less common than Gilbert. Um, and it prevents the production of or the function of the transporting proteins that actually move bilirubin out of the liver. And that's that. Okay. Okay. Um, question 35, Daphna. Mm -hmm. An infant is born with evidence of liver failure. The differential diagnosis of overt liver failure in a newborn includes neonatal hemochromatosis and hemophagocytic lymph lymphohistiocytosis, HLH. 
of the following laboratory test abnormalities. The one that, that distinguishes a diagnosis of, H of HLH from neonatal hemochromatosis is choice A, anemia, choice B, high ferritin, high ferritin, choice C, low fibrinogen, choice D, neutropenia, choice E, thrombocytopenia. So this was a tough question because um, how similar these uh, disease processes present. Mm -hmm. um, and I know they both have anemia. I know they both have high ferritin. Um, I know they both have low fibrinogen. The babies can present basically in DIC. Um, so they have thrombocytopenia. So, I mean, that left me with D, neutropenia. Yeah, that is correct. So um, we've talked about neonatal hemochromatosis. We said that it was uh, a disorder in which iron is deposited in the liver and other tissues in large quantities. It results in stillbirth, IUGR, preterm birth, um, and it can lead to liver failure in the newborn. Um, we talked about the lab evaluation of uh, hemochromatosis, and it usually has normal to slightly elevated hepatic enzymes. You have uh, abnormal coags, low fibrinogen, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and high ferritin levels. So now, HLH is a rare disease with high mortality. And again, shout out to my Mount Sinai peeps, because if you are a liver transfer, transplant center, mm -hmm. you have to rule out HL, HLH. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just with this, just so painful. Uh, it's caused by, so, so what is HLH, right? So it's, it's hyperactivated T cells and macrophages. And though they may have the same laboratory profile as hemochromatosis, HLH may also have neutropenia and low natural killer cell count. The diagnosis of HLH is confirmed by, by findings of hemophagocytosis in samples of bone marrow, spleen, or lymph node tissue. Now, um, how does so so how does HLH present? HLH presents like many other diseases. It presents with fever, cytopenia, splenomegaly. They have elevated triglycerides. They have elevated ferritin. They have elevated uh, IL-2 um, and hypofibrinogenemia. There's a familial form of HLH that is autosomal recessive. And you have um, to, the, the demonstration of a genetic defect is diagnostic, but it often lags behind the fulfillment of the clinical criteria and the need to initiate treatment. So there's, so there's these extensive uh, mm -hmm. criterias for uh, the diagnosis of HLH. And for those who are interested, I think they were updated from, uh, they were initially from 2004 and got updated mm -hmm. in 2009. Um, you needed at least three of the following, at least three of fevers, planomegaly, cytopenia affecting at least two cell lines and hepatitis. You needed at least one of the following, a high ferritin, an elevated soluble CD25, and a hemophagocytosis in on tissue biopsy or uh, low absent uh, natural killer cell activity and some other supportive features that was not really required, triglycerides, fibrinogenemia, uh, uh, I'm sorry, hypertriglyceridemia, hypofibrogenemia, and hyponatremia. Um, the, the management of primary HLH uh, is usually immunomodulation therapy uh, followed by a stem cell transplant. Um, so yeah. I don't think they're going to ask us about the, the the diagnostic criteria for HLH, but I do think it was an interesting question that the neutropenia is the differentiating factor mm -hmm. when you're hesitating between um, uh, HLH and hemochromatosis. Yeah, and I think they could give you a you know clinical picture of 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 HLH. 
Um, and so, yeah, all of the cell lines can be affected in HLH and having at least two cell lines down is, is one of those uh, clinical criteria. Okay, question 38. Which of the following gastrointestinal hormones or enteric neuropeptides is responsible for pancreatic enzyme secretion and gallbladder contraction? Is it A, cholecystokinin, B, gastrin, C, glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide, D, motilin, or E, secretin? Um, I mean, I struggle with those questions, but... Mm -hmm. um, Cholecystokinin, I remembered. I remembered. Um, I remember that acting on the release of pancreatic enzymes. I I, I remember that pathway. I mean, gastrin. I think um, gastrin, gastric stomach. I don't think that has uh, that was the right answer. Um, the insulinotropic peptide. Uh, again, I I didn't consider motilin. It has to do with the motility of the gut. Secretin is the. I think it was. Um, I think it has to do with the duodenum. So anyway, I picked cholecystokinin, and uh, yeah, it's one of those where I, I, I yeah, go ahead. I'm not going to say more. Just go. Just <laughs> yeah, no. Bail me out. <laughs> a is the correct answer, but I, I, we really have to, we really have to, we have a debt of gratitude to this these GI pioneers because it's they sound like what they're supposed to do. So. Uh, Coley uh, makes sense that um, it would help with the gallbladder contraction because that's the the Latin root. Um, so cholecystokinin released from the small intestine, it stimulates the pancreatic enzyme secretion and contracts the gallbladder. Then you have gastrin. It's the uh, predominant regulator of gastric secretion, uh, also has some tropism for the gastric mucosa. And then glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide is a jejunal hormone, and it plays a role in the postprandial release of insulin levels. Motilin also does what it sounds like. Um, it's released by the small intestine, and it helps with the uh, motility functions, like the acceleration of gastric emptying. And secretin uh, is a duodenal hormone secreted from the duodenum, which makes sense based on its location. It helps regulate the gastric acid that is coming into the duodenum. And so it acts on the pancreas where it stimulates both the release of bicarbonate and water. So when you have too much gastric acid that's flowing into the duodenum, secretin is secreted um, to try and mitigate that. Um, they added another one in the review book because I think sometimes they come up in questions together. A neurotensin is actually an ileal peptide that has an inhibitory effect on gastric secretion and uh, motility, um, which makes sense if stuff, it, you know, if if stuff is stimulating all the way in the ileum, then it's it's kind of a feedback uh, to the beginning of the pathway to the to the stomach um, and to the motility to slow down. It's also important for adaptation of the neonate to enteral nutrition. So I'm sure we will hear, be hearing a lot more about neurotensin uh, as we continue with the uh, changing of feeding protocols. And it's called neurotensin because it's also found in the central nervous system. Yeah, I was ashamed to say that I just basically <laughs> based it on the names. But I'm, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. Okay. You're good. You got it right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Last question of the week, Daphna. Whew. Let's go. Question 40. The digestion and absorption of medium and long-chain fatty acids are different. Compared to long-chain fatty acids, medium-chain fatty acids, then 
give me the correct statement. A, are able to directly enter the portal venous system from the enterocyte. B, are all unsaturated. C, are resynthesized, resynthesized into triglycerides and packaged into chylomicrons. D, can be further metabolized to terminal metabolites that regulate inflammation. Or choice E, contain 12 to 24 carbons. <laughs> I'm chuckling. I'm going to tell you something embarrassing. So I don't know why after all of the chemistry and the biochemistry and the physiology that like I still didn't understand what triglycerides look like. <laughs> but the this, okay, this the squiggly line the thing. squiggly line thing in the Bradsky and Martin book, in the neonatology review book, I thought was great. And it really makes sense how they it breaks down. So you got three squiggly lines attached to one straight line. And when they break themselves up, they break into the three squiggly components, uh, three glycerols. It makes plenty of sense so that it can be packaged. Anyways, some things, some things you don't understand until the 10th, 12th, 20th time. So the thing about medium chain fatty acids that makes them particularly valuable is that they're easier to break down because they're smaller um, and because they can directly enter the portal venous system. So A is A is the correct answer. Um, and, and, if you, and, and if you remember, we spoke a little bit about that when mm -hmm. we talked about chylothorax. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and if you know that A is, I mean, well, A is the right answer. But, so that makes C wrong. Um, sure, sure, sure. sure. That's right. You'll, you'll you tell us. No, no, you'll say what us. you have. You were, you were saying something. I, I mean, you don't have, don't, don't feel like you must go through the different answer choices. You were saying something. What, what were you Well, saying? I think if you're in a test, like basically – a and C or it has to be A or C, right? Like um, since they're one describes uh, what long what long chain uh, fatty acids do, and one one describes what shorter chain fatty acids do. Mm -hmm. Anyways, okay. yeah, yeah. So 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 you you got it correct. A A A is uh, the right answer. They're able to directly enter the portal venous system from the enterocyte. So there's several types of fatty acids. Um, there's fatty acids that have carbon-carbon uh, double bonds are known as unsaturated. And fatty acids without double bonds are saturated fatty acids. Another approach to classifying fatty acids is based on their length. So if you uh, are called a short-chain fatty acids, uh, they uh, are fatty acids with tails of fewer than 6 carbons. Medium chains are 6 to 12 carbons. And long chains are 13 to 21. So <clears throat> that, that piece of, of information helps you rule out choice E. Mm -hmm. So here they said medium chain fatty acid in the, in the question stem, they said contains 12 to 24 carbons. No, uh, these would be long chain fatty acids. Medium chain are six to 12, okay? Um, the process of lipid digestion occurs in two major steps involving bile acids and lipases. The first step involves the breakdown of lipid into smaller particles via micellar emulsifications. Um, once inside the enterocytes, different chain length fatty acids are metabolized in distinct ways. And that's really the key statement there. Mm -hmm. Longer chain fatty acids are resynthesized into triglycerides and packaged into chylomicrons. So chylomicrons, I remember from chemistry because it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the rare concepts in college you really understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, those long chain fatty acids are big, big molecules and they're clunky to walk around. So they need mm -hmm. a transporter. And mm -hmm. the chylomicron has this has this membrane that really uh, allows it to uh, function as a packaging system for the long chain fatty acids. Um, 
the um, the chylomicrons are packaged into vesicles, which are not which are exocytosed into the lymphatic system. Long-chain fatty acids can be further metabolized to terminal metabolites that play a role in the resolution of inflammation. Medium-chain fatty acids are able to directly enter the portal venous system, and that should then make sense because they are smaller, they're easier mm-hmm. to go around, and they don't need to be packaged in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was um, long-chain fatty acid versus medium-chain fatty acids. And if it comes up, um, I like to think that the saturated fats uh, have a single bond. That's how I remember that the double bonds are unsaturated. Yeah. I mean, because I, it didn't make sense. The terminology doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I, um, okay. But okay. So I, I majored in chemistry. Ah, so. tell me. <laughs> so, um, you have your carbons mm-hmm. and if you can connect them to mm-hmm. four different items, then you've saturated your carbon. And if you can't, then it has to just double up with another carbon. So then mm-hmm. it's no longer saturated. Now it can be confusing because if you're able to make all your connections, then technically you're saturated, mm-hmm. but it's saturated with connections other than a carbon you're already connected to. So anyway, um, that's, that's, that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that weren't chemistry majors, the saturated bonds have a single bond between <laughs> instead of double bonds. <laughs> no problem. I, I have to use such such mnemonics all the time to remember uh, other concepts that I am not going to be the one giving you any flack <laughs> for, uh, for this. Absolutely not. And you know what? As we always say, whatever works, <laughs> which is going to be the name of our new podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Definitely. That was fun. Um, do you know who we have on to the, this week, uh, Sunday, for, uh, for the incubator interview? I do. We have Dr. Monica Arroyo. Oh my gosh, you guys, she's phenomenal. So come spend, you know, an hour with us and uh, hear from her. She's a neonatal neurologist. So she'll talk to us about being a consultant in the NICU um, as well as being a mom in the NICU. So yeah, I think, I think uh, just to close out the show, I think there's um, um, one of the people I got a pleasure to, to learn from was Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said, you want to find these educators, these teachers mm. that you look at them and you say, they're the models, right? They're the mm-hmm. ones I want to be like. And for me, I've applied that in medicine where you see a consultant and you're like, they are the mm-hmm. prototypical surgeon, right? So Dr. Holly Neville, which we'll have on to me, is the prototypical pediatric surgeon. Monica Arroyo, Dr. Monica Arroyo is the prototypical pediatric neurologist. I think if I were to become a pediatric neurologist out of tomorrow, I would want to do everything exactly like her. Just like, like her. Exactly, to a T. <laughs> Because she is perfection. Yeah, and, and I mean, and you she, know, and you know, you're. You, I know I'm not biased because this is what everybody else mm-hmm. who's worked with her say about her as well. Yeah. So we're super excited to have her on the show. Yeah, she has this. I think you'll, it'll come across in the interview. Just this calm about her when she comes into the team room, when she comes into a patient room. Um, she's just a pleasure to to work with. So yeah, we'll yeah. see you on Sunday. All right, Daphna, that was fun. Okay. Uh, see have you a good one. Yeah. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. 
If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.